It's wholly other. And this other is this call to faith, this gift of faith, if we will receive it. And, and he says, where's the boasting? It's excluded. Because of what law? You know, he's saying, so are we following a law that says thou shalt not boast? <laughs> and then we're all going to start comparing how humble we are, right? Welcome, everyone, to the Faith Recovery Podcast, where we're seeking to recover uh, from bad ideas about the God and the gospel and recover the faith. And what we're doing these days is rehashing some ideas that have come up again and again in our podcast, but possibly they weren't dealt with very directly. Maybe they were just side comments that left questions, in my mind at least. So I'm coming back around and asking Nathan some questions. Last week, we discussed the biblical idea called justification. This week, we'll discuss the biblical idea of sanctification. In standard Protestant theology, Reformation theology, justification is followed by sanctification. Mm -hmm. The idea is this. In justification, we are counted as righteous. In sanctification, we become righteous in fact. Last week, we discussed the justification that is by the faith of Christ. This week, we'll discuss the sanctification that is by the faith of Christ. So I'm going to dive into my questions for Nathan. Nathan, in your view, what does it mean to become a righteous person or to be sanctified? Whereas last week we talked about the meaning of being counted as righteous. Uh, what does it mean to become a righteous person or to be sanctified? Well, um, forgive my voice. I've had some kind of crud, so... Just in case that's distracting to anybody. Um, so for me, I, I don't see that there's this big difference between the two. I, I see that for me to be justified is to be sanctified and that that um, distinction was made by people who, um, like Luther, believe that there is this difference between our, um, our own righteousness, our righteousness proper, and that which God counts to us. That um, I, I would say that as we made kind of the point last time that Romans four twenty five where he talks about by you know that he was um, he was crucified for our sins right but then he rose for our justification and we're like well how does his resurrection justify us and and you can make the point that well the resurrection gives validation to his his suffering right uh, but it doesn't really. Uh, answer, I don't think, the question of, of the justification, because for our sins would suggest that his death was to exonerate us, to count, to cause us to be counted, uh, acquitted for our the guilt of our sin, which is basically justification in a standard understanding of it. So however Paul is using justification in Romans 4.25 is not the standard understanding. It's something broader. It's something that incorporates and requires resurrection, Christ's resurrection. So I would say that that is the faith of the Son, which is throughout Romans and throughout Paul's um, theology, throughout his letters, is tied to justification. Um, so once a person receives the faith of the Son, then they have received righteousness. And in its essence, what does it mean to be righteous? Well, it it's to act faithfully. Okay, well, how does somebody act faithfully? Well, it's to have faith, this sort of faith, uh, this trust. 
So uh, the person, a person who has uh, death-defying trust in God can be counted upon to behave in a way that is faithful. And faithful behavior is righteous behavior in the divine economy. So um, there's not, we, the idea that there's this, these stages of justified, sanctified, glorified, um, that, that's a nice little trichotomy, I guess. It, it, maybe it sounds okay, but it doesn't really jibe with scripture. For instance, um, almost every place where the word sanctified is used in, at least in the NIV, it's speaking of something that's happened to us at our, um, salvation moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm thinking of one where Paul says you were justified, you were sanctified, you were cleansed by the washing of renewal and rebirth. Right. He just seems to be throwing words <laughs> at the conversion experience and yeah. just, just, and just set and assigns to the conversion experience, all of these terms that theologians separate out. Right. Yeah. He's, he's kind of going black preacher on it. You <laughs> 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 were, but, uh, in, uh, first Corinthians six eleven, he talks about, but, but you, some of you were. He has this litany of sins. And then he says, you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. That doesn't sound like something that, you know, you were justified and you are being sanctified. It doesn't really fit um, our concept if we say sanctification is this ongoing process of becoming righteous in a observable sense of um, somehow acquiring virtues through our own um, practice or even our own reliance on that. What about Peter's comment where he talks about adding virtue, adding knowledge to virtue or virtue to knowledge, um, where he seems to be talking about taking on the nature mm-hmm. of God, yeah. God, the character of God. Do you know the passage I'm talking about? Yeah. Um, is it First uh, Peter or Second Peter? Um, I feel like it's Second Peter, Peter 1. Peter 1, yeah. Um, yeah. And what about Paul in Romans 5 where he talks about growing in character? Um, we have peace with God sure. and we rejoice to see that our character is being formed. Yeah. Uh, well, hope produces provenness mm-hmm. is the actual uh, in the Greek. It's not so much uh, we add character. We say proven character. We're, we're like, what, is it, what does provenness mean? We don't really know. Mm-hmm. But because we are kind of preoccupied with our own personal, personal virtue and our growth in our character, um, we, we insert that. Uh, <laughs> I'll be frank. You know, we, we don't know what provenness means. What, why is that a positive thing? Mm-hmm. You know, um, I, I would say that it is the, not just our own personal provenness, but that we are, we are proving the gospel as hope um, transforms us. And we see, we see that we now have an ability to endure a trial. There's something, you know, when a trial comes and we find that there's something resilient within me that wasn't there before. Mm-hmm. And I go, wow, oh my God, you know, God is, he's changed me. Mm-hmm. He's made me something else. I didn't know that was there. And that increases our hope, that increases our faith. So, you know, Paul is describing a cycle where we go from hope to hope in Romans 5. You know, he, he talks about that this hope was given to us and, and, and that this hope has a value to it, that God has engineered things so that we have this delay, this pause. And this pause is for the purpose of growing hope. Okay, so, you know, he's saying if, if we could see it, well, we wouldn't hope for it. So he obviously suggests 
he's suggesting that not being able to see it is so that we can hope for it. But then that the hoping for it is a part of, of a transformation, yes, that happens within us. But that transformation isn't so much a, a multiplication of particular virtues. Those, I think, are, are, are part of it. They're like a byproduct. But I, I think that as our hope grows, as hope produces more hope, it begets greater certainty that that trust in the Father, this faith of the Son becomes more active we begin to act more faithfully. And so it's not so much that we are um, adding. Uh, now, you know, Second Peter 1, he does speak of kind of this litany of qualities. But again, that those are being tucked into and coming out of our faith. I think that the faith is always the referent. Mm-hmm. So he says, add to your faith goodness and goodness knowledge and knowledge self-control. But he doesn't really talk about how to do these except that I think that they're they're springing from this new nature that is really being driven by faith. As you know, he talks about just a few verses earlier, he says, for his divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through the knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness through these, okay, through what? These promises. Mm-hmm. He has given us a very, or through these, um, through the knowledge of him, he's given us these very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the world. So here's this being saved from the way of the world mm-hmm. concept that we t- talked about. Well, how do we? How are we escaping the way of the world through lusts or evil desires? Well, let's let's run that those two verses backwards. You've been saved by the from the lust uh, that is corrupting this present evil world, right? Um, by participating in the divine nature through the promises that he has given us out of the knowledge of his own glory and goodness by his own divine power. So we're, we're, we're kind of uh, pathologizing or, or, you know, we're running kind of this history of, of redemption. And, and so there's this, this change in character, but this change in character has come through knowledge. What was the knowledge of him? Well, it's the gospel. Maybe you can say, well, I'm inserting that, except all of the tenor of Scripture says the way we're going to know him is the gospel, right? So the knowledge of him that he's given us has put within us this expectation, right? These promises. They, we, we've appropriated for ourselves his resurrection. The love, the, the faith have been appropriated for us. They, they become this hope, this expectation we have. That gives us a, like an off-ramp, a pursuit that is, that transcends this world's pursuits, which allows us to participate in the divine nature. Now, how do we do that? So verse five, for this reason. So I I think there is very similar to the um, fruit of the spirit. Whereas Paul in, in Galatians five speaks of the fruit of the spirit, here in Second Peter 1, he's speaking of the fruit of faith. So all of these things, I believe, are, are bundled into the faith of the Son. And he's just saying, unpack them, let them come forth from it. Because as he gets to the end of that, and he says, if you possess these qualities in increasing measure. So this isn't some lifelong pursuit that begins with faith and ends in love. 
You know, Paul says in Galatians 5, 6, the only thing that counts is faith working through love. So this is happening in a, say, a 24-hour period, <laughs> right? This is something that is a concert. It's really proceeding forth all at once. Goodness, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, uh, godliness, and mutual affection, mutual affection, love. All of these are just springing from that faith of the Son. Mm-hmm. They are a natural consequence. And he's saying, let that take place. Let that happen. That's why I'm saying that if a person has the faith of the Son, they have the righteousness of God. So think of a character trait that's positive. That's going to flow from that. And if it hasn't yet, well, that person maybe is still growing. They, they're they still applying that faith. They're still unpacking that faith. But the kernel of righteousness, that which is really facilitating these other virtues, is there. Mm-hmm. Okay. And and so it's it's being unpacked in these virtues, um, which the highest of which is love. But then he says that, man, you're if you do this, you're not going to be ineffective or unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, it's the gospel, the knowledge of Jesus Christ that brings this about. And so some people, some people will just say, oh, yeah, I believe that. That's good. And they'll, they'll move on. Okay. But these people haven't, they, in my opinion, they haven't really believed or they haven't appropriated that faith. They haven't connected that dot, you know, those two dots. Um, because he says, whoever doesn't have them is nearsighted, blind, forgetting that they have been cleansed from their past sins. Yeah, this is like, um, I think using your language, this is people who who believe the gospel but don't have the faith of the Son. Right. Somehow belief in the gospel has not translated into themselves having the faith of the Son of God. Right. Um, right. So you're describing a growth in faith more than a growth in character. Yes. I'm thinking of Romans 4 where Paul says that Abraham grew strong in his faith, giving glory to God. Yeah. I think maybe you're arguing that actually the biblical concept is growth in faith right. rather than growth in character. Right, right. And, and it gets back to what Paul says in, in Romans 3. You know, he says, where's the boasting? Um, you know, he says it's excluded by what? By a law of works? So it's not possible to exclude boasting by a law of works. You know, if we turn First Peter or Second Peter one into a, if we say, okay, well, here's how what goodness looks like, right? Giving ten percent of your money, right? And right. we say, but here's what perseverance looks like. You know, running a five k. And you know, we we, we decide that we're going to come up with what these things look like, these character virtues. We're immediately going to just start whipping out this, you know, tape measure and and comparing. Uh-huh. That's just how we live. Uh-huh. Um, and and. So how does how does how does this boasting get precluded? Because to God, it's it's an abomination. Uh, it is idolatry. You might as well carve a statue or, or just go straight into paganism than to begin to the, to buy into this comparative self righteousness. You know, Paul treats it in Romans two as the same sin as the what the pagans were committing. Mm-hmm. He's saying you pagans are under God's wrath because you've rejected knowledge of him. And, you know, in your arrogance, you've created your own system of worship. You Jews are under the same judgment because you created your own system of worship. In your self-righteousness, you created your own system of worship. And it's bearing fruit in the in the hypocrisy mm-hmm. that everybody can see but you. Mm-hmm. Right? So that ain't going to work. So, you know, in, in Romans, uh, he talks about that in Romans 3.27, he says, where then is boasting? It is excluded. You know, he, he's turning to now address because 
he's really having to um, go after Jew and Gentile, right? He's saying, you Gentiles suck. You Jews suck. There's only one way to righteousness. Neither of you have found it. You've both gone off the rails. The only hope for either of you is now available to both of you, and that is the gospel. Praise God. And the gospel isn't some sort of a third way in terms of another set of, of virtue teachings. Personal achievement. Right. Focus. Right. It's wholly other. And this other is this call to faith, this gift of faith, if we will receive it. And, and he says, where's the boasting? It's excluded. Because of what law? You know, he's saying, so are we following a law that says thou shalt not boast? And, <laughs> and then we're all going to start comparing how humble we are, right? He says, no, that wouldn't work, right? I mean, how ironic. You think about, you know, this guy, he's just brilliant. I don't care. You know, it's funny how he has all these critics in the, among like, you know, I don't want to be uh, a pick on people, but, you know, Muslims kind of see Paul as this arch sinner who brought Christianity to bear when really Jesus came to teach Islam. You know, that's their narrative. And, and they say, man, what a horrible human being. What an arch deceiver. Mm-hmm. Man, you read this guy. He's just amazing. You know? Mm-hmm. Wow. Wow. God just really used him. I mean, I know he was kind of a turd. You can tell. Kind of reading between the lines. You know, he was. Uh, I mean, there are times when you just want to slap the crap out of that guy. If you knew him, you know, that arrogance would come popping back out. You know, he, he had some stuff he was compensating for, I'm sure. Um, but, man, with this is a clarity. When he's, when he's riffing on the gospel... The genius of it, I still am just bowled over every time, you know. I remember I went through this whole series of teaching through the Old Testament. I know this is a huge aside on Paul. Um, but this whole series in the Old Testament, man, it was it was hard. It was misery. It was so hard. I mean, I just felt like it, my guts were being pulled out. I Just every week, I was just questioning my calling, questioning my faith, you know, ready to just throw it in the trash and set it on fire and apologize for everything I ever said I believed. Every week. That was Wednesday. <laughs> Thursday, it was just on my face like, God, how can you do this? How can you reveal such amazing things through such deceptively simple and backward words, you know, uh, some days? And then and I got over to, after I'd finished that, and I got over to Ephesians, and it was just like, I, I think about it, like going that through that Old Testament series was finding this ancient vintage of wine, you know, and, and you're just drinking it, and it's just... Man, it's these subtle flavors just cascading over your tongue. And, and you don't even know if you have the capacity to express it, okay? Mm-hmm. So beautiful. And you get over to Ephesians, and man, it's just a stiff belt of vodka. And he's just like, bam, throwing it on the bar, you know, in a dirty glass. Drink that, you know? <laughs> and it was just his his distillation of that truth that's in this those first 39 books. His command of that and the gospel through that, it's supernatural, man. It's amazing Hmm. once you really begin to, if you go and do the hard work of seeing Jesus in the Old Testament and you realize this guy had just been, man, he had seen it in a way that I'm never going to see it. Hmm. 2,000 years later, we still are trying to catch up to this guy. Mm -hmm. So he says, what, you know, he says, how how are we going to exclude boasting? Are we going to do it through a law? You know, that's, that's hilarious. That's just, that's rich, man. That's like comedic genius. Uh, we could do a whole episode of Seinfeld on that, you know, where we're all competing for how humble we can be, you know. Um, and, he, and he says, what law? Law requires works? No, because of a law that requires faith. God's genius is that he's required this, this thing from us that he's got to give us. 
and that nobody can quantify or measure and that we all have, you know, we have, we've received it, we activate it, uh, and it's expressing itself in unpredictable ways. Um, it's this, like we talked about last time, this stream of existence that, um, that we enter. And so we just don't take credit for it. Um, it. By its very nature, it is this relinquishing of self. And so, you know, he gives us this, this amazing ability to be like probably the most humble person in the world. Like I may be like the most humble person in the world and it doesn't <laughs> give me a big head at all. You know? <laughs> so it's just, it's genius stuff, man. It's uh, this idea of, of the righteousness of faith. But what we miss there, I think, is that faith is the law and the law is faith. And if you're living by faith, you're fulfilling the law. It's not that you're counted righteous despite breaking the law all day. Mm-hmm. And it's 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 that it's that uh, if you're living by faith, you will fulfill the law. You are fulfilling uh, the law because the law is trust me. Uh, are you saying you're fulfilling? Now we're getting are we getting off topic? But that's okay. This is this is this is still an attempt to answer the question: What yeah. does it mean to become a righteous person? Um, so are you saying that the old the essence of the Old Testament law that God gave yeah. is trust me? Well, it's really, or did you it's mean really love the new me. law of Christ. Yeah. yeah, I mean, but the uh, the essence of the law, like in Deuteronomy 6, where we, we have this wonderful Shema, this passage, where he says that the purpose of it is that they will fear me, right? And um, and then when you get to the, in 30, where or there in 6, it talks about love the Lord your God, that these concepts of fearing God, loving God, are the purpose of the law. The law itself says, here's the purpose of it. Okay, uh-huh. so what Paul is saying that the in in Romans two he says that those who don't have the law perform the work of the law, the ergon, okay? the purpose of the law. Right, the ergon is a, is an Aristotelian concept, right? That thing a, a thing is good if it fulfills its ergon. So the the ergon of a free man is to reason. A good man is one who can reason. The ergon of a slave, and this is why people don't like Aristotle. The ergon of a slave is to work, mm-hmm. right? A good slave is one that works. So um, now in Paul, Paul is appropriating this Aristotelian idea to say the law had its ergon from God. Now, if you can get to the purpose, the work of the law, you fulfilled the law, even though you may not keep kosher, you may not be circumcised, you may work on Saturday, because all of those things were um, a means to an end. But once you, if you can achieve the end without the means, then the means become um, an accessory they, mm-hmm. they just it's nice to have mm-hmm. but if you don't have it it's okay yeah if you can find a shortcut if you can find another way to right. fulfill the purpose of the law that's uh, that's fine so long as you fulfill the purpose of the law and what God has made that for us and that's in Romans 8 let's talk about Romans 8 okay let's just let's go there uh, yeah because I think you're you're leading us right into it am I okay. um, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Mm-hmm. Because the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. Yeah. For God has done what the law could not do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. So it's not that we're not under a law. It's just that the law we're under is not a written law. It's a principle. Um, and But that principle is faith. Um, now, he says it's the law of the spirit of life. It is. But that this inclination. So... The Spirit is, uh, as he says in Romans or in Galatians 5, the Spirit desires in one direction and the flesh desires in another. Uh-huh. 
So the Spirit is given to us. He uh, is this new set of desires, this um, renewal that happens. And But we're not going to follow that without faith, which is why the Spirit wasn't given until the Son was mm-hmm. glorified. Mm-hmm. So it is, it's by receiving the faith of the Son that we can now receive the Spirit of the Son. And so by the Spirit of the Son, you know, now compels us the, by the faith of the Son, we follow, we obey. But the, so the standard is faith. If we, if we act in unfaith, we've violated the covenant. So long as we're acting in faith, we are living in concert with the law that we are under. So easy enough, right? It's, uh, and yet it's very hard. It's simple and it's hard. Um, if when your faith is challenged, when, say, you are facing persecution or you're facing the consequences of your decisions or whatever else that where there's a major consequence on the line or when your flesh is just crying out to be somehow satisfied and you are saying, you know, I'm putting you to death now, mm-hmm. um, that requires faith. Um, and so it, if we choose to act in the faith of the Son and to reject this shortcut self-interest, you know, action, this, this self-salvation approach, mm-hmm. if we, once we live in that mode, then we are living faithfully. Uh-huh. Now, you don't, it's not so much, and I'm afraid that, I'm afraid that Christians are, have been taught this narrative that they are, that there's this law of God, this expectation of God that is beyond them and it is in place and they are violating it every day. You know, every 15 minutes, they're somehow breaking the law of God and that God is, is terribly disappointed, but he's looking the other way, you know, because they're counted righteous in Christ. That's him looking the other way. Right. And that, so that assures their humility, but humility and self-abnegation are not the same thing. You know, that, that we ought to be able to take up our identity. We ought to be able to hold our head high. We ought to be able to rejoice. I mean, when Paul prays in Ephesians that they would have their eyes opened, it wasn't to how bad they are, right? It was to just how great their standing is, how high their inheritance is. I mean, man, if, you, if we're not living every day as a Christian, you know, if we can't rejoice in the Lord always, then we've missed it. You know, it, now, it doesn't mean... Bad things don't happen and hard times don't come. But if we can't always turn and say, but in Jesus and, and have a reason to rejoice, you know, um, we've missed it. And I, and I think that that should be the engine that drives our behavior, not this. And, and there's whole movements where people just rifle through every little failure, every little careless word, every selfish inclination, and they're just condemning themselves for it. You know, and they can say, well, now there's no condemnation but I'm still, I'm still a piece of crap. But uh, thankfully, I'm not condemned. That doesn't seem to get anybody anywhere. It seems to still leave people in that Romans 7 approach. Instead of looking up and, and going forward and trying to press on, um, people seem to continually be trying to remediate their faults. And um, I've not seen anybody break out of that and become some spiritual giant or saint or anything through a lot of just um, self-loathing or, you know, just putting yourself down or whatever. Uh, That doesn't seem to yield much. It's a great way to have a group of people who always feel, you know, you can lead them because they 
are constantly reminded of how deficient they are. So they surely need you to guide them, you know? So it's a, I think it's a great method of control if you want to control a group of people. If you tell them, look, you've got 100% of what you need to know. Go, live it. You know, they, you can't really control those people. Once you tell them, hey, um, it was foretold that this would be written on your heart and we wouldn't have to teach each other know the Lord, but you, we would all know him. So if you don't know him, you're not a Christian. If you do know him, you're not in need of me. You know, we all need the body, but I don't need any single individual. Um, but now if I think, well, you know, Jesus just, he, he, he went and he picked you up from, you know, death row and, you know, he gave you a ride to the hospital and he dropped you off, you know, he just kicked you out on the curb in front of the ER. And for the next 30 years, you'll be in rehab. (laughs) Thanks. Thanks, Lord. You know, Hey, I'm glad he saved me, but that that's not worthy of him. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's not the way he did it. You know, he, man, he found me there and <clears throat> healed me on the spot. Made me brand new. Took me home and said, it's a boy. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, and your point there being an, a new creation uh, made in his likeness. Mm-hmm to live by the faith of the son, to live in by the same faith he lived by. Right, right. And and when a person does that, the, the consequence will be a growth in Christ-likeness. And Christ-likeness is simply, I mean, it, it trends toward love. I mean, all of those character traits from 2 Peter 1 really culminate in love and come out of love. Um, and... You know, Paul says as much that this is the, you know, and Peter does too. This is the cardinal virtue that everything else just holds together from. Uh, so, Nathan, you've spoken, I think, a, a lot already uh, in answer to my second question, which was what's the mechanism of that transformation? I mean, you're pretty clearly saying that the mechanism is faith. Yeah. Live by faith and you will be transformed. You will become a righteous person. In fact, you're saying if you're living by faith, you are a righteous person. Yes. You are acknowledging that as you live by faith, you do grow in your character. As you mm-hmm. become more practiced in living by faith, there's going to be character qualities that become more, that get firmed up in your in your life. Right. Um, is that, that sounds like what people today are calling spiritual formation in Christ. Uh, that's, that's a popular term now for uh, discipleship, growth in Christ, likeness, um, and there's a, you know a spiritual formation movement which has a heavy emphasis on the practice of the spiritual disciplines for uh, t- for uh, as as mechanisms that are that are helpful in taking on the character of Christ and in, 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 in being transformed. Yeah, yeah, and this all uh, presumes again as this kind of dichotomy between justified and sanctified. I mean. If, if we look at all the places where Paul talks about being sanctified, that it's it's kind of with justified seems to happen in that same moment. Really, it's that same event, right? It's that regeneration event that, that happens. And, and it's just looking at that same event from two perspectives, maybe someone's moral standing as opposed to their religious status. Um, so, you know, as I'm sanctified, I am set apart from the world. God counts me in a different category before him. 
So sanctified has to do with how I represent him to the world and how I relate to him. Okay. Um, whereas justified has to do with my standing with relationship to my previous life and my future going forward, my behavior. So that's, it's a nuance, but it's, it's looking at the same event from two different angles. Hmm. Okay. It's not so much two separate phases of Christian life or whatever. Uh, the thought that it is, I, I can't even find its inception in Scripture. I don't see the idea where someone gets this idea. Maybe there's there's probably Wait, which which idea you can't that see? sanctified is a separate phase of the Christian okay. life. Okay. Um, now it may be. Um, I think in Hebrews where he talks about we press on to holiness without which no one will see the Lord and all that. Um, and I don't. I'm really not ready to crack that one right now. But um, at any rate, that sanctified in Paul Paul's writings. Um, speaks of something in our past. It's just, it's what we are. It's what's happened. So to think that it's something we achieve um, seems a bit presumptuous and and maybe even heretical. Um, but at any rate, the, the idea of spiritual formation, um, it is an effort to bridge this divide that Luther left us, uh, this idea that there's a righteousness that we're given and then a righteousness we obtain. Uh-huh. And so there's a gulf between those two righteousnesses. They're not allowed to touch each other. If they do, they pollute one another. Okay. Now, that I think that's an erroneous concept, and it, and it leaves us with a very narrow, thin, anemic gospel um, that basically insists that it has no direct impact on our life. Its impact can only be behind glass as we look at it in this hermetically sealed environment and we appreciate it then out here somewhat tangently and related we begin to behave in a way that shows our gratitude for what's behind the glass our appreciation of it okay uh, paul didn't see it that way that the that this gospel impregnates us mm-hmm. right with this new life mm-hmm. and so because of that this life is is bursting forth it's growing uh, but the presence of the life it means you're alive, mm-hmm. right? It's not like you're growing to become alive. You're already alive, and that life in you is the life of the Son. So it's not like you go from being unlike Christ to being like Christ. It's just that you go from being like Christ to more like Christ. Mm-hmm. Okay, and and I think that's an important distinction to make. Now, when we talk about spiritual formation, really it comes from this passage in Galatians 5.19, or 4.19, where uh, Paul says, to the Galatians, my dear children, for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. Now, why would you think that that verse is talking about a prolonged experience of spiritual exercise? What do you think? Is Paul saying, look, I, I'm going to have to walk you guys through solitude and um, what are the various ones, right? There's um, silence, solitude, fasting, uh, contemplation. Service, worship. Service. Yeah. yeah. Now, as he's saying, I, you know, guys, I'm going to have to walk you through. I've come up with a program. We're going to start with, with prayer, and we're going to go to um, silence, and then we're going to go to solitude, and then we're going to go to fasting. And then we're, you know, every week we're going to take on a new discipline, and then you're going to incorporate that into your life, you know, between digging ditches and building aquifers for the Roman Empire 14 hours a day. I want you to build some time for, you know, self-care so that you can grow spiritually in there, right? Go ahead and do that. 
Is that what he's saying? Is he saying you well, Galatians yeah, he, have not yeah, spent he makes, enough time in the disciplines? Yeah, he makes no reference to those disciplines except like maybe to prayer and and worship, but uh, uh, and you know being together in worship. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, someone might argue that uh, the disciplines were assumed; they were a given. Everybody understood in the ancient world that you had to discipline yourself unto godliness. Paul's yeah. phrase: mm-hmm. um, Jesus went away and prayed. Jesus took right. times alone, and so that's a model, and it's understood that everyone should do that. Right? How, what would you? How would you respond to that? Sure. Uh, well, before I leave, yeah, I'm going to respond to that now. Okay. So, I would say that, like where Paul says that uh, exercise in godliness is beneficial for this life and the one to come. And, and I think that's great. I, I'm not against the disciplines. It's just that we see the disciplines as a way to grow in character, whereas I think that the, um, the writers of the New Testament saw it as a way to grow in power and effectiveness. That, you know, as your faith expands, you can receive more from God. And so, you know, prayer wasn't something for me, you know. It, and, and I think that when somebody says, well, prayer does more for the person praying than it does for the person being prayed for. When somebody says something like that, what they're really saying is, is a prayer doesn't work. And, um, well, that, that doesn't seem to, you know, jibe, but you need to stop praying if you think that. Um, meditate instead, and a lot of people do. You know, people who treat prayer as a, just some sort of a rigor that they go through in order to grow personally, really stop praying and really start just kind of meditating a lot of them spin off into buddhism you know eastern um spirituality because there is no buddy to call on there's nothing to expect that the the action becomes your god the practice becomes your hope and um unfortunately those practices i think they can have positive benefits and that's why i say it's unfortunate because i think it's people are making shipwreck by trying to find spiritual um, growth and changing their character through the practices themselves. Whereas it seems that these practices were about actually getting something in the real world. So Jesus goes, he spends all night in prayer, right? But then he comes down and he selects his 12 disciples. What was he praying about? The 12. Right, yeah, right. It wasn't like he went up there and said, you know, let's just have some Father-son time, I'm not saying that that wasn't a thing. I think if we in a relationship with somebody, we want to be as close to them as we can. But it seems that prayer had an aim, an intention, primarily. And that, you know, so the, the disciples all wait and they pray. But it's not so that they will become more spiritual. I mean, I think that happens. I think our faith is stretched as we pray for something, you know. But something happens in response to their prayer, right? Um, it's not just, and, you know, it's like Luke doesn't record, and they all felt much more at peace, right? You know, he, he's, the place shook and, the, you know, stuff happened. Um, and so I'm, I don't expect that every time somebody prays, something super dramatic like that will happen. But I think if we expected it more, then it probably would happen more. Um, so all that to say that the disciplines, when Paul says that um, bodily exercise or does profits little, but exercise and godliness has um, a benefit now and in the world to come, you know, bodily exercise would have been training for a competition in, in the ancient Near East. You know, it mm-hmm. wasn't so much like 
you know, Timothy was just really concerned. He wanted to be ripped. <laughs> right. right. But there's this idea that, you know, you wanted to compete in the games. You wanted to win. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so you train to win. Mm-hmm. I think spiritual disciplines are the same. That we are in a battle and a, and a competition, a, con- a contest mm-hmm. with the forces of evil. Mm-hmm. And so we train to win. We train to expand our faith and our capacity to receive. Jesus spends 40 days in the wilderness in prayer. And then he goes and casts out demons. And then his disciples, you know, they try to cast him out. And the disciples can't. And they say, why couldn't we? And he says, this kind only comes out by prayer. Mm-hmm. He says, you just haven't spent the time. Mm-hmm. You're, you're kind of, in, by, by the end of your statements, you're, you are not arguing that we sh- should not value the spiritual disciplines, but rather that there is a, a right and a wrong way to value them. Right, yeah. And I think that if we see them as a way to grow into Christ-likeness, um, number one, it's probably not going to help us grow into Christ-likeness. Number two, if it does, we'll boast in it because it's something we achieved. And it's something we've been given. So when Paul says, "I'm," you know, how is Christ going to be formed in them in Galatians 4.19? Well, he says, you know, he's going to have to pop them out. Right? He says, I'm in birth pains again, right? Uh-huh. Yeah. So he says, I gave birth to you once. Mm-hmm. Now I'm going to have to give birth to you again. Mm-hmm. But, and if you look at it in context, he's talking, he's just reiterating the gospel to them. He's going to rebirth them again right. by preaching the gospel to them again. Right. And, and he's saying that, you know, so we want to say, what does it mean to be Christ-like? Okay. Um, but we'll back up a few verses. And he, he says, I plead with you, brothers and sisters, in verse 12, become like me. For I have become like you. He says, you're my example. He says, you did me no wrong. As you know, I, I, I came to you sick. I came to you with this illness. And I preached to you because I, I just had to stop and, and seek medical care, I guess. you know. And he says, but even though my illness was a trial to you, you did not treat me with contempt or scorn. Instead, you welcomed me as if I were an angel of God, as if I were Christ himself. Where is this, then is this blessing of me, your blessing of me now? I can testify that if you could have done so, you would have torn out your own eyes and given them to me. He's saying, look, that was the power of the gospel. <laughs> I don't know if you remember, but um, John Mark went back to Jerusalem rather than go to the area where the Galatians were. These weren't really, ex- you know, great people. They weren't the people that you wanted to be around. The deplorables. They were those guys, mm-hmm. right? I mean, we're talking about, you know, just way deep south, redneck. You know, we know that there's just everybody out there shooting shotguns in the air and, you know, drinking moonshine. And that's who we're going to go preach to uh, or whoever you're scared of, right? Mm-hmm. Inner city, um, whatever it is that, that maybe gets you kind of scared and you think, I, I you know, I, I think I, I hear my mom calling and, you know, <laughs> right? Um, and so that John Mark, you know, he's gone. And what, what Paul's saying is, is that you just enveloped me in the middle of my illness and you attended to me and you welcomed the gospel. And that is the character of Christ. And it was born in you from that first moment. Mm. Mm. And I want that back. Right. They were formed in Christ at their conversion. Right. And they He's, expressed the faith of the son and the love that comes from faith exactly. at their conversion. Yeah. It's exactly. not something you had to grow into over 30 years. Right. Isn't that, isn't that awesome, though? I mean, praise God for that. But if we really take that 
passage in context, it is a massive testament to the power of the gospel to make somebody not just righteous in name only, right? Mm -hmm. What would that be? You know, you got Republican in name only. I guess that'd still be rhino. (laughs) (laughs) So you want to be a rhino. You don't want to be a Christian rhino. Um, and, and, but that's unfortunately what uh, a truncated gospel will leave us with. Well, and, and the, and the, the spiritual formation movement would say we do have a truncated gospel, and that's why we need a spiritual formation movement. We're trying to help people not be righteous in name only, but righteous in fact, right? It's the same concern, mm. but your point is that the faith of the gospel, the faith of the Son is actually the mechanism right. by which we uh, become uh, righteous in fact, righteous right. in character. Yeah. I mean, if our gospel doesn't produce this kind of a transformation in people and, and fuel its continuance, then it, it's truncated. And I mean, and the answer to a truncated gospel isn't to supplement it. That just leaves it truncated, right? If you, if you say, well, it's a truncated gospel, so let's add on top of it discipline X, Y, Z, you know, well, you're saying it's still truncated. You're just, and now you're supplementing, supplementing what's lacking. If we had to supplement the gospel with church participation, church membership, discipleship programs, New Testament ethics, uh, and just pick anything, if the gospel isn't enough to get a person there, then it's not the same message that Paul preached. And 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 rather than going back and saying, "Whoa, whoa, whoa," we're seeing a bunch of just flaccid, anemic people they say they believe in Jesus but they're um, they're just going back to their old lives and they're they, we don't stop and say well maybe we're maybe we're preaching a, a broken gospel maybe we're not preaching the gospel like we should we don't say that we say well we got to bring in some programs around them okay how so, self-congratulatory right right now now going back to the spiritual formation movement the the uh, the effort on the part of Dallas Willard in particular I think was to say that to make that same point you're making that the gospel we preach is um, is is not a, the gospel we've been preaching is not a gospel that's been transforming people, and he said we what we need to understand is uh, the gospel that the gospel Jesus preached the gospel of the kingdom is uh, the fullness of the gospel which transforms people's lives. Mm-hmm. So he his and the, I think the movement's answer is to say. That what we uh, it's sort of a transition in my mind it's sort of a transition from the Pauline gospel to the to, to the Jesus uh, gospel of the of the gospels, um, and how would you respond to that? There, there's there's this idea that like I guess the uh, the point being that the, the kingdom of God is available now we can enter into life in the kingdom now it's a gospel for life here and now. Um, where God comes in and, and changes your life, sure, and, and it doesn't, and, and as opposed to a gospel that it just secures us for heaven when we die, right, right. I, number one, I think you're really on dangerous territory when you um, juxtapose Paul and Jesus. If you say, well, there was a Jesus gospel and there's a Pauline gospel, um, and he didn't say that. This is just kind of my take on it. Sure, but it is a return to the gospels as primary over the letters. Uh-huh. Um, which is not really very good New Testament um, studies because the, the letters came first. And the Gospels were written to a standing community that were, by and large, the result of uh, Paul's ministry <laughs> or John's or Peter's, people who, writ- who wrote the letters. Uh, and so to think that the Gospels are primary and the letters are secondary, well, that's historically um, erroneous. That's an anachronism. 
So, um, you know, we have to begin with, let's just begin with the earliest letter and go from there, okay? So Galatians, most would suggest, is the earliest letter. And Galatians says it's the gospel that's proclaimed. If anybody adds to it, damn them, right? Uh -huh. Uh -huh. That's it. So if, if our understanding of the rest of the New Testament suggests that there's something other than the gospel that Paul preached is the primary revelation from God, then we are getting, it's just bad New Testament scholarship. Forget about the rest of it. It's just a bad treatment of the New Testament. The New Testament and the history of the church is that the gospels are the result of that which Paul preached in terms of they are with us because of the life transformation and the community that was built around the kerygma, the preached yeah. word. Peter preached it. Paul preached it. The church was born. The, right. church is, the church then produced the gospels. Exactly. And so the gospels are curated to address life in the church among a bunch of people who had been changed by this proclamation. Mm -hmm. If we don't see it that way, if we say, oh, oh, that's a later edition and this is the earlier model, well, we're just getting it wrong. And, and we're going to set people up to really question their faith when they see, you know, if somebody who's actually astute says, well, these gospels weren't even written until 70 AD, the earliest one, maybe mid 60s. You know, and, and so they're 35 years, 30, yeah, 35 plus years remote from the events. People start to say, well, well what's going on here? And, I, you know, I would say, look, there's this message that can be stated in 30 seconds or less that began changing the world. Mm -hmm. That these other books are here because this, this message began changing the world. Jesus died. Jesus rose. Jesus is coming again. And we need to, is that your point? And we need to uh, uh, understand the depths of that message. Right. And that, that message actually does include the availability of the kingdom of God now. God is, God is here and now. Sure. Your life can change now. Of course. I mean, Romans 1 uh, is a statement of the gospel. It's the gospel of the kingdom, right? Where he talks about that the, that the goal of this gospel is that the nations would come to the obedience of faith. Okay, what, what I think is unfortunate about this gospel of the kingdom, uh, it, it suggests that there's this writer. So you hear the gospel, you're invited into the kingdom, and now you have to obey the Sermon on the Mount. There's nothing wrong with the Sermon on the Mount except for decades, our first Christians didn't have it. So they were pretty good Christians, I think, before they had that available to them. You know, the book of Matthew probably was written after 70 AD. Paul's already dead by that time. Right? Uh -huh. I mean, the Sermon on the Mount is wonderful. I, you, I love it. It's and would beautiful. you argue that the ethic of the Sermon on the Mount is implied in the gospel of course. message? The gospel message, it produces in people that which Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount. Sure. And, and I think it, the Sermon on, like the Beatitudes, I think they depict, they, they paint a portrait of, of someone who's called. You know, all of that is a beautiful thing. But if we think the primary gospel is repent for the kingdom is at hand then that gets back to this idea of conform your behavior to an external standard or go to hell. And that's not a gospel. That's just a warning, right? The, a gospel is, is good news. Uh, the warning you're going to go to hell is not really the gospel. Jesus said that that's the good news. Repent and believe the good news. Right. Uh, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent. Believe the good news. Right. The good news that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Right, right. And so that's that's good news. But for him, it was at hand. For us, it's here. Right. Your point is when Jesus said that, it's it's arriving in me. It's not yet fully implemented. Right. Because I haven't gone to the cross and risen from the dead. Right. Is that right? right? But what I think a lot of people hear when they hear gospel of the kingdom is something like a turn or burn. 
um, idea that you have to obey this, that if Jesus isn't the Lord of your life as demonstrated by your obedience to this document, then you may not be in. And boy, that, that leaves people in a bad spot because now they're back to legalism. You know, Lord, sometimes this, this Lordship gospel, it's a tacit way of just bringing back legalism. You know, so I don't want to pick on him. Everybody likes him, but, uh, you know, Crazy Love, Francis Chan. Okay. You know, that book was very well received. And I think it was well received because there are a lot of serious Christians out there who are tired of the bench warmers. Mm-hmm. And we're like, oh, finally, somebody's going to tell these bench warmers to get off their butt. Man, it just, it just brought back, you know, a bunch of the, the just PTSD from my legalistic days when I read that book. Mm-hmm. And I know he doesn't mean to be that way. And he's done a lot of really good things. But this idea that, that you could get there and that Jesus would say, depart from me. And you, you would say, well, what's going on? And, oh, you didn't do everything I said. Okay, so we're just back to a new set of laws. Mm-hmm. You know, but, that, but that's this left-hand implication of this movement, this radical, crazy love movement is obey everything Jesus told you to do in the Gospels or you're probably not really, it's not that you're going to, that's merit, but it just is it is you showing that you don't have saving faith and and you probably should question your eternal destiny. Yikes. It's a new legalism. Most most Christians in the first century could not live up to the standard if you go and you distill through the gospels everything that Jesus enjoins on people, you know, Philemon. Okay. So Paul's all he's got all these positive words about Philemon. Philemon didn't do what Jesus said, sell everything you have, give to the poor. You know, so what are we going to do? Did Paul just redact Jesus' commands? Or is Jesus showing this high, basically unreachable standard so that, you know, people can be changed? Here's the thing. If we're supposed to read the Gospels and follow the Jesus we find there, we're we're set up for failure. Because there were 12 guys who spent 24-7 with that dude. Nothing. Nothing. They didn't own anything. They'd walked away from their families. They ate. They slept. They took a crap all nearby him. For three and a half years. What were they like at the end of that time? Not transformed. They were bad. Not they until were he bad was people. risen from the dead. That's right. So what's what's gonna actually what's the mechanism that's actually gonna make people new? The cross and the resurrection. Hey, if and that's the, not what and, we get. And, and, Believing it and then receiving the faith of the Son in the Holy Spirit. That's right. And that's transformative. That's what we see in the book of Acts. Right. And if we don't get that from the story of the Gospels, then we've kind of missed the point. And we start saying, well, I'm going to get it. You know, I wouldn't be like them. Oh, wow. You know, now we're all of a sudden just right there back there with Peter. I'd never deny you, Lord. I'm one of the strong ones. I'm one of the committed ones. Man, if you're counting on that, you are set up to fail, pal. So, um, yeah. Uh, can I leave us with a scripture and then yep. we'll move on? Okay. Um, so I think Philippians 3 is the most comprehensive statement of what it means to be a disciple. And so I'm going to read Philippians 3, 7 through 14. Make a quick comment, okay? He's, he's talking about his legalistic righteousness. He decides, hey, man, I don't want that anymore. He says, whatever were gains to me, I now consider lost for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord. For whose sake I've lost all things. I consider them garbage, that I may gain Christ and be found in him. I'm going to read this as the Greek has it. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ. What is the righteousness that is through the faith of Christ? 
the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. This is a righteousness. It's a gift. It's through the faith of Christ. Now, what does that look like? What does the righteousness through the faith of Christ look like? It looks like this. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection. The faith of the Son says, Lord, Father, I know you're going to raise me up. And how does the faith of the Son transfer into my life and your life? I want to taste the power of the resurrection and participation in his sufferings. I'm willing to participate in his sufferings in order that I might attain to the resurrection. Right. Yeah. So fasting, yes. If that's that's participation in his sufferings, then yes. Right? Um, Solitude, yes. Um, All of these, yes. But but it's because they're participation in his sufferings. So with this expectation of the power of the resurrection falling in behind, okay, becoming like him in his death. And so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Now for Paul, resurrection from the dead, I, I understand it to mean was this final conquest of sin in the flesh, this um, dissonance, self-dissonance, this disintegration of self. So Paul says, you know, I, he says, not that I've already obtained this. He says, you know what? Every couple of months I do something that I'm ashamed of. But that's all right because last year it was once a month and the year before that it was every two weeks. Okay? So this is this, is this activation of the faith of the Son and it is bringing forth life and resurrection life is this integration of the self. Uh-huh. And that's what it means to be growing in Christ-likeness because he says, the one thing I do, I just forget what's behind. I take hold of, of that which is ahead. And so I press on, you know, toward the goal, the prize that God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. That I think is the, that sanctification. If you want to speak of a process of the Christian life, I think that's what it is. Practicing death and resurrection in your personal life and experiencing death to self and experiencing resurrection life coming forth right in your life yeah we grow in christ Christ likeness as we exercise the faith of the son and that's it and the faith of the son says praise father i know you're going to raise me up yep that's good that's a great one to end on let's all be thinking and praying that this week thanks everyone email us your questions at discussion at faithrecoverypodcast.com.